Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Pamela Boyce Sims does so much and is active at so many different levels that there is just way too much to talk about. In addition to her work with evolutionary cultural design, her engagement with the transition movement, her 37 years of Buddhist practice and 13 years of Quaker practice, her advocacy for community-supported enlightenment, Pamela is engaged with the African Diaspora Plant Medicine Project, intending to empower and build resilience at the fundamental level of food and medicine. We sit down today with Pamela Boy Sims in person at the Friends General Conference gathering held this year at Grinnell College in Iowa. Pamela, welcome back to Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me. There's a lot of things I want to talk to you about, and it's been two years since we had a full conversation. Indeed. I did re-listen to it just to try and remember all of the bases <laughs> we covered, and I'm aware that for context, listeners now will want to know a few things about you. We have in common some time on the African continent, Mm -hmm. and that's important in evolutionary, certainly for me, and you spoke very eloquently of how your presence there deeply affected you. But one thing I think I would like you to speak about is your both spiritual and your genetic DNA. You're a person of color, and that includes some people uh, just off the coast of northern United States. And that's part, of course, of your spiritual experience, right? But you spoke in considerable length about some of your religious DNA, too. The family you grew up, the ways you've explored... And so I need you to, in two minutes, or <laughs> two so, minutes, eh? <laughs> uh, give people a fair expression of your DNA that got you to today. I can encapsulate, I believe, with regard to where my work with the African diaspora is at this point, and work backwards from there. Most of my life has been devoted to. Prior to marriage, spiritual development at a very early age, introduction to metaphysical traditions at age 14, theosophy, anthroposophy, Gurdjieff work, and all the way through, Buddhism was a theme. Prior to being married, that was my life. And while I was married, I was raising children, being a wife, and also very deeply ensconced in a spiritual path. My husband, now ex and best friend, and I were both deeply involved in theosophy initially, which again has that Buddhist thread, Colonel Alcott and H.P. Blavatsky being the people that introduced Buddhism to the United States. So that was always a theme. So it was spiritual development, marriage and spiritual development, family householder life. And now, at one point I said to my husband, Dear Louie, 
I love you very much. We've raised four wonderful children. They're off in the world. I'm going to be a monastic now. We're going to be best friends for life, and we're going to be divorced. So that's what we did, and we are indeed best friends. And I, at that time, was frequenting very often a community in Woodstock, New York, which is a Tibetan Vajrayana Karmakagyu tradition Buddhist monastery. I took my refuge there. I did my householder vows there. And I finally took vows and went into that monastery. So that began the the next chapter, which was back into 100% spiritual life, which I started at 14 in this embodiment. So in the interim, what has dawned on me is this particular embodiment, I have an African avatar. I am a person of African descent, which is only my avatar, which is why I haven't spent all that much time devoted to that particular egoic construct, that sheath, which is really not me, but it is how I manifest in form. But now... I really do have to pay homage to the fact that this is the particular body avatar that I was born into, this embodiment. So in addition to the spiritual path, my Buddhist Quaker, and as I, I, one thing I should mention is I have a 38-year Buddhist practice. I have a 13-year Quaker practice that intersects that in the silence, the mandorla, the overlap, is the contemplative, still-point consciousness silence of mystical Quakerism and Buddhism. So that being said, I recognize that I haven't spent a lot of time, with the exception of living in, in, well, I did marry an African, (laughs) a Cameroonian, and was married to him for 22 years and spent five years in Senegal. But in terms of engagement with people of African descent in the African diaspora, that had not been an active part of my life. It was always spiritual development, householder, etc. So now in this third phase, I am now working with the African diaspora in many different ways to pay homage to the fact that there's a reason why I have this particular body in this particular lifetime. So that's kind of my check off that box, but doing it with full engagement as I try to do everything. That was exactly the DNA I was hoping you'd spell Great. out. Great. Okay. Went I, there. <laughs> I was just, I was actually hesitant to do it in my words because I think you say it much better. So let's talk about plants. About plants, okay. Well, and of course, you know, it's all related to the plant medicine project. And, you know, the African diaspora project that you're involved with and relating this to the UN. And this project might call to a person who had a green thumb. And Mm. I don't know if that's really any part of you or if you're really dealing with more the human part of that ecosystem. So how do you connect with plants? At age 14, The Secret Life of Plants fell off of a bookshelf in an esoteric bookstore in New York City and clocked me on the head. And this really now is coming full circle to that book that introduced me to a non-physical understanding of the world through plants. It was when Krillian photography had first come out and they were able to actually apprehend the light emanation around plants, around organic matter, but that particular book was speaking about plants. And you could see the emanations of uh, the changes in the electromagnetic field around the plants when you would sing to it, when you would water it, when you would break off a leaf, etc. So that at 14 was my introduction to the plant world. In the back of that book was the address of the Findhorn Garden in Scotland, 
And Findhorn then took me a deep dive. The entire four years of high school, I read everything that Eileen and Peter Caddy wrote. Eileen Caddy was the person who was working with nature spirits to grow this magnificent garden on the Scottish moors where nothing should have grown. But they were working with the oversouls, the the devas, the angel, and Dorothy McLean came in with the angelic realm. And Eileen, they were just founding Findhorn at that time. Right now it's a big, splashy eco-village with multinational conferences at it. At the time, it was a couple of trailers and a bunch of people growing plants where they should not have grown. And she chronicled everything they did in talking to the nature, the elementals is what theosophists call the nature spirits that oversee specific plant life as well as animal life. They would talk to the pests and they would, the moles and the voles and everything that could have eaten it, the rabbits, etc. They made peace with them. There was a detente. The animals were given their own patches to take care of and they grew plants that never should have been grown on the Scottish moors. So that was my first introduction to the metaphysical world through plants. And the fact that we are not physical, we are the infinitesimally small portion of who we are is actually in the physical avatar, the physical human being, recognizing the vastness of who we are that connects us to the larger consciousness frame, light, spirit, unified field, quantum field, is what we are part of. So that book at 14 was it was plants and nature that took me into my spiritual path. So again, coming full circle back around to this part of my life that has had it in the interim, a deep immersion in environmental movement work. I was a trainer for the transition U.S. environmental movement nationally, and that is a movement that is very grassroots subsidiarity, locally focused, and then connecting all of the local nodes like mycelium under a forest. What I'm doing now is always against the backdrop of climate change, resource depletion, and that immersion in what is happening to the planet. So my introduction to the spiritual through plants, my immersion in environmental work, making certain that we have in place what we need to get us through the eye of the needle of climate change has brought me to the place where now that I'm turning toward the African diaspora, my knowledge of not just the plant sitting in front of you, but the energy field of plants, the signature of plants, what plants do in bodies, how they serve us, how we serve them, how they radiate energy and healing power through us, now is my approach to plants and nature kingdom as we grow medicinal herbs, plant medicine, which is part of our connection to the planet, our grounding, our healing at the physical level. But it is also the way we are going to actually relocalize medicine as we move forward as climate disruption becomes the norm. You certainly know the phrase, food is medicine. Sure, absolutely. Because you've lived in the Buddhist monastery, and I think when you take on that practice, one of the things I think you do is become a vegetarian. Am I right about that? Not necessarily. necessarily? Tibetan Buddhists eat yak. There's nothing else to eat. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) So you eat yak. I I certainly don't. I am a vegetarian, and many, many, many Buddhists are, but it's not necessarily something that all Buddhists do. 
The reason I ask, and this is just a sideline to the discussion of the, the plant medicine, but, you know, plants are medicine. When I became a vegetarian in 1976, people who I think felt convicted maybe in their, I, I don't know if they accepted their conviction, but I think they felt convicted or at least accused in eating animals, you know, killing, I said, I don't eat animals. That, that's my bottom line. They would say, oh yeah, but you kill plants. And particularly when you talk about the photography, the secret life of plants, plants do experience what happens to them. So I, I said, well, I, th I believe that plants do not suffer in the same way we do because evolutionarily they aren't free to walk away. Pain actually serves an evolutionary purpose for animals because we can move. That doesn't mean there's no suffering, but I'm told that in Buddhist practice that plants, that there's less karma contracted or absorbed when you kill a plant you still have to acknowledge the life form that is sharing its life force with you. Put it in your words and your experience, if you would, because I want to get to plant medicine, but I have to understand what our relationship is to plants. It's all one big web. We all serve each other. We're all here. Plants, animals, mineral life, human life, to evolve. I evolve because you evolve. The plants evolve because we evolve. We evolve because the plants evolve. There is no way that I could speak for five different schools of Buddhism, which actually so much of Buddhist cosmology and Buddhist thinking is derived from India where it was born, where Siddhartha Gautama was. You have everyone from the Jains who sweep the ground in front of them. There are many different ways of seeing it. But what I'd just like to say straight up is that the fact that we're all interconnected and if we do not do harm I'm going to use, use the example of indigenous people in this country. It's not that they didn't kill to eat. They did it in such a way that it was sacred, that they were one with the bison. They took the heart of the bison into them. They thanked the bison for sacrificing their life. Everything is about your predisposition, your intent, your intentionality, and the purpose with which you do it, the level of consciousness and awareness. So if you're from the outset recognizing the interconnected service we all of these different kingdoms are to each other, that is a sacred act, them giving life for. If you're doing it wantonly, unconsciously, with gluttony, that's a whole other ballgame. So rather than get into what all of the different schools of Buddhism would say, it's all about recognizing the, the sacrifice and the sacredness of life of all of these kingdoms. Good. With that background, Pamela, let's talk a bit about the plant medicine project of the African diaspora earth care. So what is the origin of this project? When did it start? Who started it? And get us into the present to give us an idea of flushing out of what it is what it's been doing. As is the case with most of us, there's always a confluence of things that come together to give birth to any particular initiative. I am a member of Quaker Earth Care Witness and have been for quite some time. I clerked the United Nations Working Group, which gave me the opportunity to do the work on behalf and engaged with the African diaspora. 
my mind then rested on the most vulnerable populations, many of which are in African nations and nations of color around the world who are going to be disproportionately affected by climate change and resource depletion. The other stream of consciousness that came into the decision to do this particular project was, as I mentioned before, work with the transition environmental movement that works on local resilience building, making certain that we relocalize food production. We know where, where we're going to get water from. We're aware of our watershed, our water source, and we're making certain that when the chips are down, we'll have our food locally. It's not going to be coming from 3,000 miles away, and we'll know where our water source is, and we'll have explored water catchment systems and all of that. And the third piece that became really important working with communities of color is that for 400 years in this particular country, as a function of structural disparity and the kind of food people were eating from the time, actually from 400 years ago, the health challenges are intergenerational. There are certain diseases that people of African descent suffer chronically. So if we think about food and water, medicine was the third pillar that needed to be attended to. And medicine comes by a truck, plane, train, boat. And if that is disrupted, just like if, if that is, is disrupted for food distribution, people who are really dependent on that because their health, on large percentage of that population, their health is deeply affected by these intergenerational diseases, they need access to medicine. Plant medicine, you can grow just like you can grow your own food. And people of African descent, just as many immigrant populations, which gave birth to a whole other project called Diasporas and Displaced Populations that are coming to this country, were originally agrarian people. And they had their own system of plant medicine. So in addition to tending to the fact that medicine is almost as important as food and water to certain populations who are the most vulnerable populations. We can grow it locally. There's also the fact that two generations back, grandmothers and great-grandmothers knew how to grow their own medicine anyway. And I, I work with people in economically depressed areas. I'm working in Chester, Pennsylvania, which is just outside of Pendle Hill, which many of the listeners might know, in Pennsylvania, where 71% of the population is African-American, at this point semi-literate, used to be a bustling industrial area is now economically depressed and just an environmental justice nightmare. I work with people all the time that can remember when their grandmother came up from South Carolina, North Carolina, Mississippi to Pennsylvania to find work. And their grandmother didn't have access to physicians, but she knew she could go out into the backyard and pick something that would fix a tummy ache or would take care of a cold or sniffles and that type of thing. So only one or two generations back, we can lift up a tradition that was strong at some point, and that comes together with the need for environmental resilience building to have your food, your water, and your medicine on site. So that's how all of that came together. That's a wonderful coming together. <laughs> Who is the UN working group that you're referring to? How does that get constituted? Where does it come from? That's Quaker Earth Care Witness. That's a national organization, which is the environmental 
focal group for Quakers in North America, really. And I clerked the United Nations Working Group for, for years, and I actually created the African Diaspora Earth Care Coalition under the auspices of the United Nations Working Group. And with Quaker Earth Care Witnesses' ECOSOC accreditation, we work at the United Nations to give voice to a lot of populations in the NGO movement that would not have a voice. So that is a whole other wing of what we're doing. But again, as I mentioned, with the environmental movements that I've worked with, subsidiarity at multiple scales of the fractal is extremely important. So we work locally, we work regionally, we work nationally, and we work internationally and supranationally at the United Nations, trying to get a ping at each level of the fractal. And we could go into more about fractals right now, but I'm going to put that off for a <laughs> Thank little bit. Thank you. Put that bit. on the yes. shelf. <laughs> <laughs> As a physicist, I actually have studied chaos science okay. on that end. So I, I actually perhaps have more specific knowledge of that than my average listener. Mm. But I'm sure a lot of you are more knowledgeable than me. And I probably need you to come on the program and speak to us here at Spirit Whole other conversation, yes. But this is Spirit in Action. NorthernSpiritRadio.org is our website. On that site, you see all of our interviews of the past 14 years. You can listen to our previous interview with Pamela Boyce-Sims back two years ago and all of the other people and links to their organizations and music that's here, stations where we're broadcast, some over 40 across the United States at this point. And then when you want to track down Pamela Boyce Sims and some of her writing and thinking and the big umbrella of her work, go to BuddhistQuaker.wordpress.com. Again, the link's on NorthernSpiritRadio.org, so you don't have to memorize everything. Just NSR, Northern Spirit Radio. And also on our website, there's a place to post comments. We love interactive communication. We love to hear from you. We have things to say. But without your voice, the circle is not complete. The communication is not as fruitful. So please post a comment when you visit, and there's a donate button for this full-time work. We need your support because we do not depend upon income from corporations or from the government, but from people. Uh, We really would like to work people to people. So please donate when you can. Local communications are so important. In terms of resilience, we need this more than ever. Right now, the media in the United States, some 90% plus of it is owned by six corporations. 90% of our media. So your community radio stations, kind of places that carry this program, are super valuable in terms of keeping our local DNA. So please support them first. And then if you can, support Northern Spirit Radio. Again, Pamela Boyce Sims is here. Buddhist Quaker is her self-appellation. Uh, you said 11 years of... 11 years Quaker? No, 13 years. 13? 38 years Buddhist and, Thir- and 12 years Quaker. 12 years Quaker. Intersection in the silence. Intersection. So anyway, she's here with us today at the Friends General Conference gathering being held this year in Grinnell, Iowa. Next year we'll be over in Virginia. Last year we were in Ohio and on and on. Please follow the links from NorthernSpiritRadio.org to keep following our meandering. 
I wanted to ask you some specifics about the plant medicine and about the UN Working Group. I saw a, a clip you had, uh, people speaking of their background, where they're from, and so they're interfacing with this plant medicine project, the African Diaspora Project. Was that not? Am I getting that wrong? They do, to a certain extent. That particular clip is uh, from a project that is called Diasporas and Displaced Populations. And what is that? It is another subset of the United Nations Working Group. Right now, it's powered by three elements. Young students who are Swarthmore College, Delaware County College students, Delaware County, Pennsylvania students that are of multiple different backgrounds, some Pendle Hill interns as well, environmental activists who are seasoned, and elders. It is one of the sub-projects of the United Nations Working Group, as is the, the Plant and Medicine Project. And what that is about is recognizing that for perpetuity, given climate change and resource depletion, there will be hundreds of millions of people displaced by wars that are climate change-induced, by civil wars, there's genocide that is, that is occurring, there is all manner of the drug cartels, just violence is rife. And it's exacerbated by the fact that climate change is dialing up. We are bringing together old diasporas. We have represented the Yazidi diaspora, uh, the young people at Pendle Hill Quaker Retreat Center. The Yazidis are currently in Syria and Iraq. Their home territory is in the Kurdish area of Iraq. They have been subject to 74 genocides since the Ottoman Empire. We're bringing together the Armenian diaspora, the African diaspora old, which means the African-American diaspora from the coast, as well as the new African diaspora, which is the horn, that's Somalia, Eritrea, and Ethiopia. Also the Jewish diaspora, the Palestinian diaspora, spoken for voices from, no one really represents, but voices from these diasporas. The old diasporas are offering their wisdom their experience, their adaptation and integrity-based integration and cultural preservation strategies that have served them for, in some cases, hundreds of years, in some other cases, decades, to current refugees and immigrants that are being forced out of their countries and in anticipation of wave after wave given climate change dialing up in the future of more of this happening. So it's very pragmatic. We'll be meeting actually at the United Nations next Wednesday to give birth to another NGO that's going to be very specific about remittances to home countries where people need to rebuild. The Yazidis, for example, their villages, ISIS is burning their villages right now burning their crops right now. So we have people that are in incessant need of rebuilding. So that's one of the products we hope to come away from this meeting next week. So that is very specific to diaspora displacement-focused work. And part of my question about who the group is, is this all Quakers who are part of the group, the diaspora people, are they represented there too? How does this get put together? Okay. The 
Plant Medicine Project is a complete partnership between Quakers all over the country and in Canada and people of African descent. The Diasporas and Displaced Populations Project is facilitated. Basically, space is made for what we do by the Quaker community, because I happen to be Quaker. <laughs> but it is predominantly fueled by people of African descent and Yazidis and Armenians and Jewish people and Palestinians who are not Quaker. And that's what I was trying to understand. <laughs> There's a little bit of knowledge. Well, let's go back to the Plant Medicine Project. So food is medicine. Mm -hmm. And if people know which right foods to eat... Uh, they can adapt. People who have been part of the diaspora who have left Africa. I, I saw a very interesting map via Facebook just recently. It had for each state in the United States, other than English and Spanish, what was the most commonly spoken language at home? Hmm. And for Minnesota, it's Somali. Oh, without a doubt. Yes. And I was amazed by the number of states, including some in the Deep South, I think maybe Texas. Texas has uh, the second po uh, Somali population. And Arabic is, this, this, mm -hmm. I think, the highest language there. So I was kind of uh, amazed by the number of people who've arrived in various corners. Uh, in Wisconsin, it happens to be Hmong, because a lot of people from Southeast Asia, sure. after sure. The, the end of what we call the Vietnam War, migrated and they were refugees uh, in the blowback from that war, the people who were left behind yes. and when the U.S. pulled out. There are thousands of Yazidis in Lincoln, Nebraska. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so part of my question really is the plants that are medicine and you grow up knowing to go outside and grab this plant, when you've moved to the United States and you're living in Nebraska instead of the Middle East, the plants aren't the same. Right. Is this a retraining? Is this a sharing of local? Are there local experts in plant medicine that are part of this? Are we importing plants? How does this work? At the moment, this is phase one. We are growing herbs that very specifically treat health conditions and diseases that are a function of the structural health disparities that work against people of color in the United States. So those are herbs that treat type 2 diabetes, hypertension, all the cardiac diseases, PTSD, all of those diseases that are chronic and widespread in that community. And there are herbs, some constitutionals and adaptogens that treat the entire body. But we're focusing on those first. So could you mention a few of the plants that you've been sure. harvesting, processing, and I think sharing with the wider populace? Sure. Right now we have grow sites all around Delaware County, Pennsylvania. Those grow sites are growing a plethora of herbs because we can harvest them and dehydrate them and, or tincture them or grind them locally, and I'll, I'll get back to that. We also have a grow site in Nova Scotia, Canada, which is Quaker-driven, a grow site in Ohio, which is Broadmead's Meeting, just outside of Toledo, Actually, the, me the meeting has no meeting house, but the, the, the friends are in a big U around the Great Lake there. So our grow site is just outside of Toledo, Ohio. We have two grow sites in Austin, Texas, both of which are Quaker, and three grow sites in Houston, 
one growth site in upstate New York in the Mid-Hudson Valley. So in total, in the United States, we have 11 growth sites. And I, I, I will get back to the herbs in just a moment, but I just want to point out that black sovereignty, African-American sovereignty, is critical in all of these projects. And Quaker Friends have been tremendous allies in that I'm using Austin as a particular example. Austin Friends was ready to roll with this, and there was a friend who has a permaculture site outside of Austin who was ready to roll with this. But recognizing that it had to be driven by people of African descent, we worked in the community to find people who were of African descent who were truly interested in this and wanted to take the ball and run with it. And when those folks stepped up and were so highly qualified and ready to run with it and up to speed and in into our national network, then we brought in Austin Friends. And Austin Friends are now allied with that group of people and have two growth sites, one coming on stream and one that has been going for a while in Austin. So I say that to say that all of our out-of-state growth sites in this first phase, are growing root herbs because the way the model works is we have to educate folks of African descent about what herbs can do in the body because we've moved away from that for two generations. So there's a whole educational process of re-immersion and what they do in your body and sampling them and the signatures of the herbs and, and all of the wonders of the plant kingdom around the herbs are going to be growing as people are actually growing them. We can do that around Pendle Hill and in the Delaware County, Pennsylvania area because we're, that's where headquarters is. In Austin or upstate New York or Ohio or Nova Scotia, etc., we don't have that latitude. Plus, especially from Canada, but also everywhere else, you really can't ship herbs that are flowers or leaves because they're immediately degraded in the transport. So the other sites can only grow root herbs because they all at this point have to be shipped back to Pennsylvania and the roots will stay. They will hold their own, whereas the flowers, the blossoms, and the leaves cannot. So I'm kind of winnowing down to the herbs that these other sites grow that treat these diseases. They grow burdock, they grow comfrey, they grow ashwagandha, Vedic and African, and they grow dandelion, and what was the other? Valerian. There are five root herbs that all of those sites are growing. This year they'll ship back to Pennsylvania. The next step of that is we will send trainers out, work with people locally, and the trainers again are herbalists of African descent work with people locally, so to build the educational program in Austin and Houston and upstate New York and Ohio and Canada, et cetera, so that simultaneous to growing the herbs, the people will actually start to develop a market, a receptive group of people that will want to use them in all of these other sites because we are distributing herbs free of charge, but you can produce them if people don't know what to do with them or what they do for them. There's, you don't have people to absorb them or make good use of them. So because the educational process has only begun in Pennsylvania, that's why everyone else is growing those five root crops to send to us at this point. In this article that you wrote, I noticed mention of ginkgo, goldenrod, valerian, willow, mimosa, black walnut, mulberry, and bayberry. Okay. We also have a site in Delaware County, Pennsylvania, which is a wild crafting site. We, we are very closely bonded at 
joined at the hip with a partner of Taylor Memorial Arboretum, which is part of Widener University. So even if the growing is extremely important for people to take back that tradition and have that skill set, but this first year, we always say, if no one was growing anything, that Arboretum has so much herbal product, plant medicine to harvest that we would be fine with, fine with just that. So we're in a really good space as far as growing herbs this year. So whose hands is this going into? Whose health is this helping? And how many people are we talking about? And what's the eventual plans? I mean, are we expanding it to all of the local populations? Is the hope that this will spread across the entire United States? Uh, because there's certainly communities everywhere in the U.S. who have people who are suffering in this way. Herbalism, natural medicine, complementary medicine is booming in the United States. Very often, it's not with the demographic that we're talking about. People of African descent who do not necessarily have access to good health care. So when we talk about scale-up, it's let, let me just mention another thing. We, we are looking to produce, looking for investors as well, to produce a revenue-generating herbal product that will sustain the free distribution end of what we're doing. We're taking that to market to make certain that we have, in addition to grants and donations and that kind of contribution, we're generating our own revenue. So there is that stream that will probably scale up in a way that a for-profit cottage industry in the herbal domain would scale up. So there's that revenue-generating product. This other piece is community-building products, herbal tinctures, herbal teas, herbal powders that we have to actually create a receptive group of people for, and that is a city-by-city thing. But once people realize that this medicine has no side effects and it is truly, truly helping, word of mouth goes very, very quickly, but it's too parallel paths. One will take the typical for-profit bringing an herbal product to market route, and that scale up, there's a whole prospectus and business plan, et cetera, et cetera, that goes with that. The other one is a very, a very definitely a community subsidiarity connecting local nodes in a web of word-of-mouth kinds of things from city to city. So two different trajectory. Are we getting feedback from the ground level where you're putting this out now? Are people adopting? Is it, is it making the changes? Where we're working in Chester, Pennsylvania, yes. We started with seniors because, as I mentioned, they still remember their mom going out to the backyard. So they have been extremely receptive. And, and we have a production herbalist and an herbalist educator who also does wild crafting and herb walks and that kind of thing. So we have lots of different ways that we're introducing people to it. So it is becoming very seductive. One of the things that we're going to be next year, they're doing tea party kinds of things for the seniors. There is a series of events that people come to where they can actually sample all of the different teas and there's fellowship and there's it's so we're, we're trying many different avenues and getting a very positive response because our herbalist educator is not just a we have production folks then the educators who know how to reach the communities that we're working in which is why people who are from the community or of, or of African descent who have worked in many different communities and know the lay of the land are essential 
And Houston, for example, we're working with the Shape Center, which is the epicenter of black cultural history in Houston. And so that there, it's already accepted. Everyone knows the Shape Center. So we're working with folks who are the local mavens who can attract the people that we need to attract. So we build that constituency. I find it real interesting that you're working at the UN level. I mean, you're connecting with the UN, and this is an attempt to replicate a certain way of working across the world. I mean, certainly it's a level that you work at yourself. Could you explain a little bit about how this kind of project is, is executed and disseminated? We are living in a time when hierarchical, predict and control governance is obsolete. It's like the oak that doesn't bend. And every organization, preferably every corporation, is at least somewhat aware at this point that what we call now in organizational development, emergent governance is going to be absolutely necessary because we're moving into as a planet, as a society, into a domain that is unknown We do not know what the future brings. We can no longer predict what is going to happen given what's happening on the planet and the conflagration of turmoil, pockets of turmoil everywhere that affects every aspect of our economy as well as civil society. So organizations are getting the drift that they're going to have to come up with a flexible, fluid, expansive, accordion kind of porous governance process to be able to effectively respond and stay solvent, stay adaptable and flexible as we move forward. That has been understood a long time ago by many grassroots movements, whether it's economic, environmental, or social justice. People have gotten that at least intellectually. But hierarchical thinking, more often than not, seeps in at all of those movements at some point anyway, because we snap back to corporate capitalist hierarchical thinking, because it's in our DNA. So, because I came across sociocracy at first in the United Nations, at the supranational level, working with the Finns and the Danes and the Dutch and the Norwegians side by side. However, from the supranational we're implementing this at the hyper, hyper local. And then also at, at, that is the leaven in the bread that gets us, moves us up through each of the other levels and layers of our organizational work as well. So sociocracy basically is a, an adaptation of Quaker process. If you want to go really far back, it's Auguste Comte, the father of sociology, who actually envisioned sociologists as the best folks to run governance. And then Lester Frank Ward, after that, decided that it would make an awful awful lot of sense if the people were governing themselves. And then from there, Kies Buke, who is a Dutch Quaker and a reformer and peacemaker, decided that he was going to infuse it with Quaker process so it was egalitarian, it was non-hierarchical, it was a flat movement to the extent he possibly could, and then his student, Edinburgh, took it forward and actually put together an institute that has made it go global. But what this is, is it's not just, hello, stakeholders, Come to my table. I want to hear your voice. 
It's not just hearing people. It is building in, baking into the DNA of a network, an organization, a corporation, the ability for each person to have not just voice, but agency and influence. And it's done by the circle process. So what happens is instead of building a reporting system where there is centralized one person to whom everyone looks for guidance and decision-making and policy and governance, subsidiarity in each one of multiple interlocking circles is where the real decision-making happens. Think, if you want to use an image of a daisy, there is a general circle, which is the hub where everybody in a petal or circles that branch off from the hub of the circle reports in. The hub of the the general circle is where policy that benefits all of the petals of the daisy is made by bringing in the confluence of all of the different experiences of the daisy petals. Policy is made, decisions are made there on behalf of the whole. But when you go out into the circles around the hub, Every convener of that circle has autonomy to make decisions based on what they see happening on the ground. In a certain sense, if Quaker committees should function like that to a certain extent, best case scenario. So they have autonomy, so they're not held up by centralized decision-making. The big difference between Quaker process and sociocracy is one is consensus sociocracy is by consent. So a proposal is made in a circle. Everyone must speak in a round that shapes that proposal. And it's like dropping a pebble in the pond of the circle. The proposal is shaped, ingredients of the proposal are put together, and it goes around and around until Everyone has had input, and it probably doesn't look a lot like when it started out because everyone has taken part in a shaping process. People can consent or object, and when they object, it's kind of like standing aside. They are invited to put together an objection memo that has to be taken into consideration every time the group moves forward with that so that any thing that the original decision did not take into account that the objector might have brought up is brought in every time they move forward on that decision. It's consent means that it's good enough to try. It's good enough to experiment with, which means that you may not fully agree with it, but you're okay with it moving forward. And the convener of that group then takes all of the amalgam and moves and there is a consent round where everybody says, okay, we're going to move forward with this. And if there are ob- objections, they have, they have documents of where the objections were, and then they can move forward. And the double linking process is such that there's a person from each circle that is linked into the general circle, focused inward, looking out for the interests of the circle in the general circle. And then there's some, someone linked from each circle, to the, from the general circle outward so that the information flows outward as well. It is Quaker process with more moorings, 
with more accountability, so no implicit governance happens. There is no iceberg of weighty or resourced people swaying anything because the rounds, the circle process shines a spotlight on every possible aspect of a decision. So there's no simmering and festering or not saying anything because everyone has to speak and the weighty folks or the more verbose people do not have any more say in a round than the person who would usually be the wallflower. It just takes all of the vicissitudes out of a process that is a beautiful thing. It sounds like a beautiful way to work. I know you made a lot of references, Pamela, to the way that Quakers do that. And there's a lot of listeners to this program who have no idea. I urge them to sit in on a Quaker meeting for business. The decision-making, particularly at higher levels, is a really valuable thing to observe. As a matter of fact, there was a Catholic for his master's project wrote a book about it beyond majority rule mm. and so he's not advocating as a quaker he's just watching how the process works and sure. it, it's a very valuable learning process for a world which i think more than ever because of the internet and our cell phones we are becoming disseminated we can reach true decision making on a wider level rather than just pointing someone to go represent your group to represent your group to on up to in a hierarchical thing we can actually participate together much more widely in the world than we ever used to be able to so anyway just a word or two more about the african diaspora earth care plant medicine project that pamela boyce sims is talking to us about if people want to get involved in this, you've mentioned investors, you've mentioned that you're growing it in so many different places. How can people contribute to or how can they benefit from what you're doing? They can go to the website and they can contact us there. For people who'd like to follow up with Pamela and the other people connected with this project, please come to NordenSpiritRadio.org. We'll have a link there for you to follow to connect up. It's a wonderful project. It promises both health spiritually and physically for a number of people who can use our support. So please do come via NordSpiritRadio.org, look up that site, and remember to go to BuddhistQuaker.wordpress.com to follow more of what Pamela is doing, thinking, being in this world. The agency that she helps each of us acquire to be a better part of world health spiritual health and physical health is impressive. So please go to BuddhistQuaker.wordpress.com. And Pamela, I appreciate you being here, taking time out of a really busy French General Conference gathering. There was one other thing I wanted to ask you about, and I meant to start off with this, the peace place. Yes. I, I would just love it if you would say a few words about the peace place, it's the first year that we've had this at the Friends General Conference gathering, and I take it that you were part of creating it. It is a new phenomenon. It kind of came out of the friend in residence idea and how to help people hold what's happening to the planet as far as climate change goes and the number of conflicts that are a function thereof and conflicts around the world. So what the Peace Place is doing It is a a presentation, a visual presentation that is projected with music from regions around the world, 
so that people are learning very specific practices that comes from a community of practice that I convene that combined contemplative practice, Quaker and Buddhist, with quantum and neuroscience techniques so that we can learn how to master the circuitry of the brain and expand the heart as well, the electromagnetic field of the heart, to be able to hold with equanimity and poise, hold sacred space for what is happening and will accelerate on the planet without being pulled into the vortex of overwhelm and despair. So it's, yes, there's, people are coming to the peace place to see, to hear. Many people already know all the information they're going to see. What we're doing is learning how to hold it through self-mastery, through, through, through some very specific practices that come from a confluence of very old traditions, as well as quantum and neuroscience. <laughs> and so when you hear this out there in Northern Spirit Radio listener land, you're not going to be able to be part of that because this week will have gone by. Is it going forward into the world elsewhere? It goes forward in the what we call a CSE. Instead of a CSA, Community Supported Agriculture, we have a CSE, Community Supported Enlightenment. And that is a network of people that anyone can join if they're interested in self-transformation on an ongoing basis. We are, we are North America-wide, and we meet monthly to use these practices that, again, combine what the Vedas knew to 5,000 years ago, what the Sutras knew 2,500 years ago, what George Fox knew 370 years ago, and what quantum and neuroscience has put at our service to be able to master and become skillful at the next step in our evolution in consciousness, basically. We call it a CSE, Community Supported Enlightenment, and the Buddhist Quaker website would be the place to go, go to find, find out about that. Your energy doesn't seem to stop, and I'm impressed by that, Pamela. It's energy both of the mind and of the heart. Uh, when I spoke to you two years ago, you mentioned that really the heart is the focal or maybe the emanating or the transmitting orb. Indeed. Uh, and I appreciate you so much that you dedicate your life to this spiritual path, that you're helping health physically, help mentally, help spiritually. I really think you're making a difference in the world, and you're helping me make a difference, and I thank you for that. Thank you for joining for Spirit in Action. Thank you so much for the opportunity and the affirmation. I truly appreciate this. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song. 